0: Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology.
1: This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
0: AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Michael Kalori. I'm an editor at Wired. And you are listening to The Gadget Lab, the podcast where we talk about the latest gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about and how they impact our lives. I am joined, as always, by co-host Ariel Pardes, senior associate editor at Wired.
2: Hey, hey. And
0: Lauren Good, senior writer at Wired. Hello.
2: This week, we're talking about your humanity and all of the different ways technology causes it to crumple, and wilt, and cower, and shrivel up. No. Hmm.
3: Hopefully, you all keep listening after this. We just took it to a really dark place. Our guest on the show this week is Aza Raskin. He's the co-founder of the Center for Humane Technology at Stanford University. Asa and his colleagues are probably best known as the people behind the phrase time well spent, which was part of their initiative to get Silicon Valley's largest tech companies to address the negative impacts their software and platforms are having on us, or I like to call it our humanware. The folks at the Center for Humane Technology are back at it with a new initiative, new goals, and a new podcast, and Aza's going to tell us all about that later in the show.
0: Well, first, let's get to the news. Something happened this week.
3: Something just happened moments before we recorded this podcast on Thursday afternoon. The biggest news so far this week, Joni Ive... Is leaving Apple. The legendary designer announced in an interview with the Financial Times, like a six part package with the (laughs) Financial Times. I think they had the heads up that he will be stepping down from his post as the head of design at Apple to start a new creative agency called Love From. Ive has led Apple's design team since 1996, and he's responsible for the aesthetic and in many ways the functionality of some of the company's most iconic products, including Mac, iPod, iPhone, iPad, Apple Watch. Um, He also, of course, designed the company's spaceship campus, Apple Park, the plans for which were laid out before Steve Jobs died in 2011. And that campus officially opened up sometime in the spring of 2017. It really is uh, a campus to behold. Um, In recent years, his track record for design has been maybe a little bit more mixed as complaints have arisen about Apple products, um, things like breaking keyboards and repairability, but no doubt um, he leaves a certain legacy behind him. Now, in Apple's press release about Ives' departure, um, or could we say he's unapologetically quitting? Uh,
0: Yeah, you can say that.
3: Yeah, he's unapologetically quitting. The company offered assurances that it's still going to be a primary client of Ives' in his new firm, and CEO Tim Cook had some nice words. He said that Apple will continue to benefit from Joni's talents by working directly with him on exclusive projects and through the ongoing work of the brilliant and passionate design team that he built so um what do you guys think of this news
0: well not surprising right and why is, is that this has been something that has sort of been in the works and typical of apple apple is really good at sort of the long game with public relations right like they planted the seeds for this a couple of years ago in the new yorker profile about johnny ive and they said you know at some point he's going to be stepping down because he he wants to spend more time with his family, he wants to do different kinds of work, blah, blah, blah. And that has sort of been the narrative when you talk about like the design stuff coming out about I mean, particularly people who follow the personnel and like know everybody's name who works in that office, they know that um at some point Johnny's gonna step down, and there is already like a succession plan in place. This wasn't a direct succession because, like you said, they're not naming anybody who's gonna replace him. Um, but you know, they did like drop some names of the people who are going to be stepping up and those names are the people that we've all been watching for the last couple of years as the people who are going to step up to take over the role of designing Apple products. Um, also probably not going to change too much because his new creative services agency is still going to be involved. So I think he's just kind of like, now he just gets to be his own boss.
3: Mm -hmm. And I think that the fact that he's still going to be working closely with Apple is something the company really wanted to underscore because they were probably concerned about a sell-off like market concerns and people wondering what does this mean for the future of apple and is apple's design all downhill from here and all those things so they're probably trying to stave off all those worries so they made sure to say in the press release like don't worry we're still going to be working with him he's still going to be putting his stamp on apple products in some way and Mm -hmm. i hate to say this but i think only time will tell whether or not that actually remains the case Mm -hmm. ariel what did you think of this
2: Um, I'm with Mike. I think it's not totally surprising. Um, I think this sort of presents a fork in the road for Apple. One is that they can continue down the same path of design that they've sort of established so well over so many years, and that's almost certainly what will happen. Um, But when someone with this kind of background leaves, it, it, it opens up the opportunity for Apple to go in a different direction. And some people have pointed out in sort of first glance pieces of this this big news announcement today um, that, you know, Apple has not had the best track record for sustainability and design. It's not had the best track record for repairability. It's not had the best track record for using um, the most innovative materials. And so there's sort of like an opportunity where you know, you're, you're trying to fill the head of design position where Apple could really take things in a different direction. Um, will that happen? Almost certainly not. Yeah. Um, but it's an interesting question to say like, well, when you're sort of trying to fill that hole, like, do you fill it with same, same, mm-hmm. uh, but not as good <laughs> or do you fill it with something that's drastically different and take that as an opportunity for growth? Uh,
0: they, I think if they're going to do something drastically different, it's going to play out over like five years. Mm. It's such a big boat. And also like what a legacy, first of all, I mean, you know, the guy is responsible for so, so many amazing things that we take for granted now, like click wheels and home buttons and <laughs> the touchscreen design, mm-hmm. all kinds of things that, I mean, obviously he has a very large team under him, but those were his, you know, he was the person who was leading that team and helping them arrive at those decisions. But I mean, the thing about Apple technology is that like a lot of those decisions that they made, that they kept, were made at a time when the systems were not super complex and as the complexity has increased over time the designs have only gotten simpler like the way the software works the way the the interaction design of the devices has gotten simpler to the point where there's like almost no buttons on the damn thing anymore right I'm talking about the iphone <laughs> um so that's kind of a weird way to to chart the progress of your product and i think that that is like that is what is really showing now as when when people talk about um you know i don't like the direction that apple's design is going almost universally what they're talking about is the fact that the device is harder to navigate now because the software has gotten so complex and it's all gestures and it's swipes and taps and things are hidden in these new menus uh and that's like it's sort of breaking our brains to try and use these devices. And I hope the next designer works on solving that problem. Mm -hmm. And that's really the only problem that you need to solve, and then you have a perfect device again.
2: I I hope the next designer has a soothing British accent that (laughs) can be used across (laughs) Apple's many marketing videos. The
3: voice of God videos. (laughs) I I disagree with you to a point. I agree that some of the complexity
2: that has emerged
3: in Apple products in recent years is around software, but I personally struggle with stuff like my MacBook ports. Mm. I mean, and and so there was obviously this push to make really thin and light MacBooks. Um, but the switch over to something like USB-C and the move away from something like MagSafe, which was beloved by a lot of MacBook users, um, to me, like there are just moments where I look down at my my MacBook Pro and I've got like a dongle shoved in to the side and I've got multiple cables coming out or I go to charge something and I don't have the right charger because I don't have the USB-C charger. I have the MagSafe one. And, you know, there's always a pain point, I think, that happens when you're changing to new standards. But to me, there are certain products that have just become unnecessarily complicated on the hardware side.
0: Yeah, that's true.
3: And I just hope that whoever comes in next thinks of ways to streamline that um, but doesn't force an aesthetic so much that it actually makes things, um, I don't know, I guess complicated is the simplest word to use at this point, which is ironic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so what's going on in the world of Amazon?
0: All right. So something that's kind of near and dear to my heart, uh, Amazon this week launched a new in-store pickup service called Counter, like counter like you walk up to a counter and there's your package uh starting this summer you'll be able to walk into one of 100 rite aid locations and pick up your amazon packages Uh, the company says that by the end of 2019 counter is going to expand to 1500 stores across the us and include other retail partners other than rite aid uh, this comes on the heels of a similar pilot program that Amazon has been testing in Europe. And, of course, it has its Amazon lockers that already are in some Whole Foods stores and other partner locations. Um, either way, it's a nice alternative to home delivery, especially for people who get packages stolen off their front porch, which is everyone, uh, including me. It happens to me all the time. And now that I have the option to go into a physical location to pick up an Amazon package, I might actually use that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly hope it's not just Rite Aid because the nearest Rite Aid to my house I think is about two miles away. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you know the part of Amazon getting into a brick-and-mortar retail location, like the retail locations are are excited about this because if your store becomes a place where people come to pick up their Amazon packages, they're going to see your store in a different way. They're going to use your store for more than just picking up Amazon packages.
2: Right, you're going to go to the Rite Aid and then you're going to pick up your Amazon package and while you're there, you're going to get your delicious $1 thrifty ice cream. Mm-hmm. You guys know right. thrifty ice cream? Yeah. It's yeah. cheap and delicious. Yeah. Um. Anyway, <laughs> I, I think this is sort of brilliant on the part of Amazon which has one of the biggest digital marketplaces in the world and they're bringing it to the real life space right so they're they're taking their business and they're translating it to brick and mortar stores without having to build anything which is amazing um it's obviously convenient for consumers it's convenient for delivery people it's convenient for these customers and it's another way for Amazon to make you feel its presence absolutely everywhere
0: yeah and you know I I like it um I like the idea of it. I just hope it works a little bit better than Locker. I have not really had good experiences with Locker. Like I know there's a Locker right here and there's a Locker right near my house. But whenever I have the option to have them put something in Locker, it's always like over in Berkeley, hmm. which is a train ride away and probably an hour and a half out of my way to go there and back. Why is it that I can't send it to something that's right here at the Whole Foods or at the, the shop down by my house? Like I just don't get that. Um, of course, there are no answers when you're trying to select a location. So I just end up having it shipped to my house and hope that nobody steals it off my porch. Mm-hmm.
3: Another thing too is that Rite Aids and other pharmacy chains tend to be open later. Yeah, right? yeah they're yeah. open on the late side, so you get home from work, you don't feel like you're rushing to get somewhere. Um, you can just mosey on in, and then like you're like you said, when you're in, you pick up toilet paper. or Toothpaste or whatever else you need while you're there. Mm Yeah, pack
0: of smokes, six pack of uh, Twinkies, and a couple bottles of vodka.
3: Now we're talking very different (laughs) lifestyles. You're
2: going to need toilet paper for after that.
0: Yeah, speaking of toilet paper, what's going on with Twitter?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Twitter, my friends, has a brilliant new idea for managing political tweets. Have you guys noticed that people like to use? Twitter for political messaging? No, really, well, tell. Well, there's this hot new thing on Twitter where politicians <laughs> like to share their ideas. Um, and Twitter has this new idea for managing tweets from politicians that violate its rules. So from now on, when a politician or an elected official or... Even, say, the president sends an offending tweet that violates Twitter's rules of terms of service. The platform will either remove it or they have this new thing where they'll hide it behind a gray box that warns users about the content. So the idea here is that people on Twitter should be able to see what a a political figure is tweeting. They've argued that this is a matter of public interest and you should be able to know, for the sake of newsworthiness, what your elected officials are saying but those political figures shouldn't be immune to Twitter's rules. So there are a couple of things to unpack here. First, this could maybe prevent some of these very inflammatory tweets from spreading because you have to actively click through this interstitial before you can read these things. Um, Before, Twitter basically just ignored some of these violating tweets when they came from government officials because like, newsworthiness or whatever. Um, But it's worth noting that this could also really inflame the relationships between Twitter and people like the president who has recently criticized the platform for making it harder for people like him to get out his messages. Um, So I think it's an interesting idea. I'm not sure it will work. Um, What do you guys sort of feel about this kind of policy?
0: Publicity stunt. You think? Yeah.
2: So I actually think it's not a bad
3: move on Twitter's part because it shows that they're trying to do something to figure out how to handle these inflammatory and not just inflammatory but sometimes offensive or straight up false tweets but um, for me like psychologically as a user if I saw a gray box or saw that a tweet was quarantined I'd be like oh what's in there what's in there I just want to click on it like it would make me re. and now granted I, I would hope that as a news person I would then be able to discern that something might be off about it and that the fact that it was quarantined would tip me off to the fact that like it's not to be trusted it in some way but I'd still be more curious than ever to go find it.
2: Yeah I, I absolutely agree. One other weird thing to note here is that um, when Twitter was asked about how they were going to decide which tweets fell into this category right because they're, they're kind of like drawing a weird um, line between tweets that have violated its rules and tweets that haven't so that's like a fine line and then there are like the tweets that have violated its rules that come from someone who is a public official and therefore it's newsworthy versus come from someone who's not a public official and therefore it's not newsworthy. Like there are a lot of weird lines here. And so in order to discern which of these tweets should go behind the gray box, Twitter has said they're gonna rely on reports from people like journalists, Um, which seems like a crazy, horrible idea to sort of put the onus back on people who are using Twitter and people like us who are reporting on Twitter um, to tell Twitter like, hey, you might want to look a little more closely at these tweets.
0: You know, I, I think this problem is a very easy one to solve. And, of course, I say this as somebody who does not work at Twitter and sits on the outside and uses Twitter. But, like, come on. They're a big company. They can do this. You have a very clear policy about what violates – like, you have you have a clear, a clear policy about tweets. And, like, it becomes very clear if you're looking at a tweet whether or not it violates the policy. And if it does – then you get rid of it, and if it doesn't, then you let it be. Mm. Instead of like couching it in this weird sort of gray, literally gray area.
3: Yeah. Wow, it is literally a gray area. Yeah. What about satire? Now, I'm not going to go ahead and assume some politicians are... Equipped to properly do something satirically,
0: I think satire but. is clearly identifiable as satire
2: mm-hmm. to a human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jack Dorsey's <laughs> argument has always been like you should know what your elected officials are saying, yeah. and that Twitter should not be in the business of censoring those things because it's a matter of public interest mm-hmm. to know if the president, for example, is is saying things that you find inflammatory. Like that is an important thing to know. Um, which makes sense, mm-hmm. but it also puts Twitter in this very weird position, and it puts the rest of us in this even weirder position uh, where it's like, is, is that an okay thing to be on Twitter? <laughs> Just because the president said it?
0: Yeah. No, it's not. It's not. If a tweet violates your policy, then you should apply the same rule to everybody, I feel mm-hmm. like.
2: So. Well, I feel like the theme of this week's news is that all of the big tech companies are grappling with these important decisions about their design and their products and services and how they're used and how they affect their users, which um, is exactly what we'll be talking about with Aza.
0: Yeah, let's take a break and then we'll come back uh, and have our interview with our guest.
1: This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show That's H-A-R, B as in boy, I, N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Our guest today is Aza Raskin, who in 2017 co-founded the Center for Humane Technology at Stanford University with his longtime friend, Tristan Harris. The CHT is best known for the catchphrase, time well spent. What started as a slogan grew into a movement as the big tech companies began using the term to talk about their new methods for giving people more control over how much time they were spending on their computers and their phones. The Center for Humane Technology recently launched a new initiative, a sort of follow-up to Time Well Spent that uses a new catchphrase, human downgrading. The new initiative challenges the status quo where platforms and apps appeal to our most base instincts by serving us content that's actually not what we may want, what they know will click on. As Raskin says on his website, our technology is not designed with sophistication of ourselves. It is increasingly doing damage to who we are, what we value, and how we decide. Raskin and Harris also just launched a new podcast to further the discussion of human downgrading. It's called Your Undivided Attention. Asa Raskin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Um, For the first question, we'd just like to ask you... For our listeners who are not familiar, can you tell us what is the Center for Humane Technology, and what do you do? Yeah.
4: So the Center for Humane Technology is a a thing I helped to co-found with Tristan Harris. And really it says, hey, there's a lot of great things with technology and a lot of pretty dismal things that it's doing to our societies. So how do we look at technology systemically and realign it to be in our democracy's values and our best interests?
2: And how are you doing that?
4: (laughs) (laughs) Good question. Um, We sort of think of of our work in four pillars. There is internal pressure, which is helping arm the people inside of companies, make the change they already know they want to see. External pressure, so that's things like this podcast, um, and creating public pressure. There's aspirational pressure, which says, hey, what is technology even for? It's for helping us extend the parts of us humans, which are most brilliant. Um, That's what a cello is and that's what a paintbrush is, that's what language is. So that's sort of the aspirational pressure. Um, And then there's the government or policy pressure, because design um, will always hit the glass ceiling of business model. So we need to have sort of a pincher from the top that creates a landscape or ecosystem in which the right kinds of technology can emerge.
3: And what kind of skill set do you think is required in order to apply that pressure? When you and Tristan are looking to Mm -hmm. bring on team members. Who, are you looking for designers? Are you looking for lawyers? I mean, who who do you think actually is in best positioned to help apply this pressure and implement the changes you're looking for?
4: Yeah, fascinating question, because this problem is so big um, that it requires going all the way from policy down to pixels. Um, and so uh, to me, it actually required retraining the way I thought, because I'm, I'm from Silicon Valley, so I think in terms of products and companies, in fact, I started a company, which I, I don't really talk about, called PostSocial, that's trying to solve these kinds of social media issues from the inside and found that i was getting trapped by the metrics of having to raise an a or a b round so the way we think about it is that you know tristan and i but really the entire cht team have been climbing up this hill and this hill is hey human beings have limits and technology is starting to overwhelm or overpower those limits and We need to be as sophisticated about human nature as we are about technology. So that's the hill we've been climbing for the last 10 years. Um, And, you know, I think it's a really important hill to climb because in the end, the thing that doesn't change is us as human beings. So we're standing up here, but other people have been climbing different hills. So some people have been climbing the policy hill, other people the data privacy hill. Um, And our job and the people we look for are the people that can help take the view that we can see from our hill and translate it into words and terms and frames that are useful for the other people on their hills, so we can all work together better. Um, and so that means design and product orgs. We have, a, we have a head for somebody who's thinking about that. We just hired her, in fact. We have uh, Yale Eisenstadt, who's helping us think about how do we translate these thoughts into terms that are useful for policymakers. Um, we have a guy named uh, uh, David J. And his job is to think how do we tell the story more broadly and create a grassroots movement so all the people that already feel the problem can find a home to come talk about it. So that's how we think about it.
2: I want to talk a little bit about this work in finding the right terminology to Mm -hmm. describe the problem, because this feels like something that uh, the Center for Humane Technology has been a a big thought leader in doing so, but you've you've also really reframed the way that you even think about the problem in the, the past year. So you and Tristan founded... CHT in early 2018. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. at that time, your sort of big directive was around this idea of time well spent, um, which was adopted broadly in Silicon Valley. Um, But now you've moved on to this different sort of moral framework. Um, Talk to us a little bit about how you're framing that conversation, maybe what's changed, and how you're using that terminology to spark action.
4: Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting, time well spent, was never just about tech addiction. It was about asking this much more fundamental question of how do we want technology to be helping us live the lives where we're making the choices that we love um, and spending time in the way that we love. That's what time well spent was really about. Um, And I think we were both lucky and also helped to create and then ride the wave um, that let Mark Zuckerberg, at the beginning of 2018, used time well spent, that phrase, as the new guiding principle for for Facebook. Mm -hmm. Same thing for YouTube. Um, It was part of the reason why Apple and Google did the the uh, the, um, uh, digital wellness and screen time features. And that really showed us the power of being able to articulate a feeling that everyone is already feeling. The time well spent bar was good, but it wasn't high enough when Mm. the stakes are what they are. Um, What do you mean
3: by that, that it wasn't high enough?
4: That is, whenever somebody hears time well spent, they immediately think about, ah, it's distraction and it's addiction. It's about me and my relationship to my phone. And what that misses are the larger systemic effects. So let me give an example, right? So Gloria Marx's research. Uh, recently showed uh, that our attention span where we are self-interrupting that is like when we're on our screen how often or how long is uh is our attention span is now down to 40 seconds because that's the effect essentially of technology terraforming our minds for the ease of the extraction of our attention right we're in an extractive attention economy but when our attention span starts going down what happens then? Well, that means that the nuance with which we can say things goes down, which means that we have to say louder and more outrageous things, which means that polarization starts going up, which means us versus them thinking starts going up, which means that overall trust starts going down, which means that people are more susceptible to conspiracy theory. And you start stepping through all these things and you're like, oh, what appears to be a disparate set of problems, right, everything from election hacking to uh, deepfakes overwhelming our ability to discern what's real or not, to teen isolation and depression. Um, All of these disparate problems are actually part of one interconnected set of of things, all stemming from the fact that we are putting the entire weight of our economy, um, over 50% of the US stock market, right? Uh, AI systems um, into optimizing us For the extraction of our attention and that's both scary because it's such a huge problem but also to me it's inspiring because it says ah if we can solve this problem where the race to the bottom of the brainstem is causing a race to hack human instinct so that we are shown not what we want but what we can't help but look at which means that we are constantly being shown the things that activate our amygdala. So, you know, we have surveillance capitalism. Maybe we should be calling this amygdala or limbic capitalism. Um, That technology is causing us to confuse screens for mirrors. And we just think we are what we see in the news and in our news feeds. But actually, we're not that.
3: And so you think human downgrading is something that's more emblematic of, of the bigger picture problem.
4: That's right. It's that technology is causing a kind of... Societal incoherence. It's a downgrading of our capacities, and we all feel it in terms of our relationships. We feel it the way our kids can pay attention. We feel it um, in isolation. We, I mean, we just we just feel it in all these different ways, um, and that creates an inability for us to like think and work on the stuff that matters most. And more importantly, all the biggest problems that we have to face, climate change, for instance. Um, are collective action problems. This requires collective human intelligence coming together to solve these huge problems. And technology is making it harder, not easier, to do those things. Um, So that's why we call it human downgrading, because it's downgrading our ability. While we've been upgrading the machines, we've been downgrading our humanity. And I should note um, that not only do we need to solve this problem, but we want to solve this problem because the world that we could be living in. Could be beautiful. Imagine instead of my phone pulling me back in every time. Right now, it's like pick a card, any card. But the card you pick is always spend more time on your phone.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Right? It could be giving me options like, hey, just hold down. Ask Siri. I want to spend more time with Michael this year. Um, and instead of asking me to fill out lots of like forms and type messages mm-hmm. and deal with calendaring, it could just be dealing behind the scene and then bing, here. Here. Four dinners have been scheduled this year, so moving from find my friends to time with friends would be a really powerful reframe.
3: One of the things that I've had the opportunity to ask people like Gloria Marks and other researchers in recent weeks, because I've been exploring the topic of notifications, is who the onus really falls on for mm-hmm. some of these things. Um, and I'd love to ask you this question, which is, does the, responsibility, the burden of responsibility for fixing this lay entirely on the tech companies? And the people who create these platforms or the app makers who create these um, sort of addictive, you know, variable ratio sort of mm-hmm. um, rewards within applications. Or does some of the burden of responsibility fall on us, the humans, the end users, if you will, use Silicon Valley parlance, who, I mean... I'm like constantly messaging with my friends and my friends are constantly messaging me and, and Ariel and Mike and I are constantly slacking each other throughout the day. Even when we sit there and say, okay, we're gonna do work now, we put our <laughs> headphones on, <laughs> we end up slacking each other within minutes. So how much of that like falls on us to con- sort of control and establish societal conventions around mm-hmm. how we do things? And how, mu- how much of it is like, we- we've been hacked into doing this? Yeah,
4: yeah. And the hacks are of these new weird kinds, which are hacks against your can't help butts. That is, um, it's hard because you're like, oh, but I, I sort of want to be slacking, mm-hmm. my 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 friend or my coworker. I sort of want to be texting, um, and that's that's sort of the, the the central point here, which is that the bug in human-centered design is that it puts human bugs at the center, and so any sort of natural inclination we have to do something can be subverted against us. So in terms of responsibility, I sort of think of it like um, it's like there's a pandemic running through your community. Some amount of exercise and eating healthy will in fact make you fare better than the average person, but at some point the pandemic just takes over. Um, you know, we sp- We've always lived in social systems, but now we spend one-fourth of our waking lives in these techno-social systems, right? Where their design is not neutral. Their design is intended, like the companies make money when they can extract attention from us, and so it's almost as if you're like walking down like a, a path, and you know it keeps splitting off. Um, but every time you're not paying attention, you're automatically getting shunted into the path, which is the most amygdala distracted version of you. And that's I think the the real power of what's going on with A/B testing is that it's taken the humans out of the loop for making these moral decisions about what content gets shown to whom when Um, so one of the 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 major changes i would like to see and this doesn't solve everything but it solves i think a major surface area of attack against our minds is is something we're calling amplification transparency Um, which is an idea i originally heard from uh, guillaume chaslow who is the youtube engineer who does algorithm transparency showing all the ways that youtube um, Is recommending videos that goes against our values so examples before the last US election um, YouTube recommended Alex Jones's videos 15 billion times Um, Kevin Roos just had that article in the New York Times about how YouTube's recommendation system uses an old con artist technique which is called uh, pace and lead which is to say if I want to convince you of something, it's one of the most persuasive techniques out there, I start mirroring and matching how you walk, how you speak, um, telling you things that are true, that are true in your direct experience, and then I start drifting you towards whatever it is that I want to persuade you of. In this case, for Facebook or YouTube, it's things which are more extreme, things that grab your attention more. You know, After the last, uh, the the Christchurch massacre, and we were just talking with, uh, Jacinda Eldern, who's the Prime Minister of New Zealand, because that massacre was designed to go viral on social media platforms. Um, and so the question is, what is social? what are they pushing? Um, remember that Facebook and YouTube are larger together than the follower numbers of Christianity and Islam together. So they're, they're taking up a lot of the surface area of, of society now. And 70% of all watches on YouTube are from algorithmic recommendations. So, at the very least, we should know which things are getting amplified. And that could be as simple as a number that's returned in an API call. Technically, this is not too hard. There's some interesting questions around, uh, like for Twitter, like, chronological versus amplified. But these are all like, these are very solvable problems.
3: Solvable in that it could just be, there could be something in the software that indicates to the user this is happening. So it's more explicit.
4: That's exactly right. And it's not just about the user. It's saying the only reason why Facebook or YouTube make these kinds of changes when they see, oh, hey, actually, we are leading people towards pedophilia. The only reason why those changes get made is because somebody in civil society who's generally under-resourced has gone out and done the research, right? Um, And that takes a lot of work. So if we really want to realign these technology companies to fit with our values, then we need to make visible the ways in which they're not. In what ways are they amplifying which content to whom? That's just a thing we all need to know, because then we can take Guillaume um, or Rene Desreza um, or Data and Society and all these groups that are currently, as I said, under-resourced, fighting back so that the companies can at least know. We can make tens of thousands of them by making this data available to to the rest of civil society.
2: What do you think is the role of government or regulators to make some of that information more available, or to sort of put pressure on companies to make changes in light of that information?
4: Yeah, um, the role of government is to make business models which have terrible externalities, as we're seeing. Um, expensive and the ones which uh, like fit with our values inexpensive that's really the role of regulation um, because you know we always hear the story of uh, of ai the be careful what you wish for right and the standard example is if you wish for an ai to make paper clips um, soon it's destroying and ripping apart the entire earth to make paper clips you're like but that's not what i intended <laughs> right um, We're in that stage now with AI. In fact, it's sort of strange. If you talk to people at Google or at Facebook, um, a lot of times they say like, oh, this is a really hard problem, which it is. We don't really know why our algorithm is recommending all of these things. You're like, wait, isn't that the exact thing we've always been worried AI is going to do? It's going to listen to our objective function and, We're not going to encode in it our values, what we intended. And it's going to find all of these horrific ways of making it come true, right? Facebook found this a number of years ago, um, where they're like, oh, hey, look, our AI figured out. uh, They were were doing this as a a selling point. But they're like, our AI figured out that uh, teenage girls that are depressed are more susceptible to buying makeup products. that's just one little example of the kinds of vulnerabilities that an AI is going to find. We just interviewed Natasha Dow-Schull, um, who studies uh, addiction, um, this particularly slot machines in Vegas. And what she discovered is, is actually really surprising. Like Normally, you think of um, uh, slot machines as these sort of clanky machines where you pull a lever. But now, they've all been designed, and actually way before Facebook, for time on device and That power of A-B testing um, plus all of the data that's coming in from these machines about the user has made an experience so powerful that some number of adults choose to sit in diapers to play, Um, right? That's not a force to, that's a choose to, but really that shows you the power of these technology platforms, especially when they sit in our pocket. So, I mean, ultimately what we were
0: talking about is a Uh, you know us making being forced to make these moral decisions Um, if if our government was going to pass some sort of legislation for this I mean you can't necessarily legislate morality Mm. so what do you legislate what do you force people to do
4: yeah so step one is saying let's make visible the externalities let's just find the places in which the algorithms and their techno-social systems are aligned with our democratic values, mm-hmm. or not aligned, um, and then you let civil society have the tools to like chime in and say like, "Yep, we like this. We don't like this. We like this. We don't like this." So that's sort of like the the first place. Um, and but I think there's an even deeper point to be made here. Um, and I've heard this called the fiduciary argument, which is sort of interesting because fiduciary doesn't really factor so much into the the argument. Um, but but here's how it goes it says there are really two types of relationships. There are relationships between equals where you can write contracts to, to intermediate them. So these are things like leases and NDAs, just you know, normal contracts. Then there's another kind of relationship which is called a fiduciary relationship, but I think of it as sort of a power over relationship or an asymmetric power over. Um, and these are relationships where one party has power over the other one often by knowing some weakness. Um, so a doctor has to know your weaknesses to be able to help you, but then they could also use that knowledge for their own gain. Um, therapists, right? Therapists are by law not allowed to date their clients because clearly knowing what you know about like your client, you're going to be able to manipulate um, that person into stuff, which is going to involve sexual things, or just, yeah, it's bad news. Um, <laughs> Uh, same thing with a stockbroker um, over over their client. And here's the interesting thing then. it's has Silicon Valley so, sort of been pulling the wool over all of our eyes and masquerading as an equal relationship for a contract, which we can go through things like EULAs in terms of service, um, when it really is a fiduciary, that it has an asymmetric amount of, of power and knowledge over us, and in fact, when you look at the kinds of things that Facebook, or Amazon with Alexa, um, or Google, or YouTube can predict about us, right—that's things like whether we're depressed, um, uh, our sexual orientation. Uh, like where we go, whether we're about to leave our jobs or quit our jobs. IBM just had a study showing that with their data sets, they can predict you are going to quit your job with 95% accuracy. So you start adding up all of these different things about us, and you're like, yeah, those are strictly greater than what a therapist or a priest or a doctor knows about us, Um, which means that this relationship isn't really a relationship of equals. It's a relationship of asymmetric power over, and when you paint the line to where things are going, you're like, oh, is that power going to increase or decrease? Well, clearly, the power over us is going to increase. The amount that's going to be able to be predicted about us is going to increase. The amount of data being collected about us, especially with IoT, is going to increase. Facial recognition is going to decrease our power as well. So we need to start moving from a sort of faux world where we think that we are consenting into these uh, relationships, which we already know isn't really the case, we, none of us read those, uh, those terms of service, to one where they have to act in our best interest and if they're not, um, then they're beholden to, uh, to it, they're liable for it. Um, that to me is the most exciting direction because it gets to the heart of what we're talking about, which is asymmetric power relationships.
3: I think a lot of people believe that you and Tristan and the rest of the team at the CHT are doing a great thing. You're trying to codify what's happening to us that maybe people haven't had a real name for. You're trying to create this shared language around what's happening to us. Um, But you've had some critics as well, uh, some people who maybe feel like on the one hand maybe just creating a shared language isn't the most effective approach. You know, you had an event recently in San Francisco where there were comparisons made between the kind of event you guys hosted and the kind of event we see typically in Silicon Valley where there's usually some type of product to sell and you're sort of productizing your message in a way. Um, What's your reaction to some of those criticisms?
4: Yeah. Um, Generally, I'm really grateful for them um, because it's really easy to start thinking that the view that you're standing on top of, your hill, is like the correct one, and everyone else is not seeing it. Um, I do think that because of the hill we've climbed, we've got to see some things that maybe other people aren't seeing, Um, but each of their hills, they're seeing things that we're not seeing. Uh, It's just so easy for us to devolve into being like, oh, you're not seeing the right problem. I'm not seeing the right problem. and so that, that shift to really thinking about our work as sort of a, a service org, to be like, how can we take these concepts and make them useful for everyone else, I think gets me really, really excited.
3: What's one thing you would say from the time you did, time well spent to down what, downgrading humanity? Yeah. What's one thing you say that you and Tristan have actively changed or um, for lack of a better term pivoted on mm. because you learned from from the first you know the first movement the first campaign
4: yeah I think the big learning from time well spent is that you always need to red team the way that the terms are going to be used um, by the other side mm. so um I think the thing we missed you know there is there's an article in the verge at some point that said you know there's a battle between time well spent in Facebook time well spent one um, which seems like we should be celebrating like yes we won but when you've won that means it takes sort of the wind out of your sails because people think the problem is solved um, but it's not solved it's just we won the next little battle and so I think thinking about The larger frame and being, like, how will our words be red-teamed? In what ways are they going to be used or bastardized is is really important. Um, Thinking about, say, climate change, global warming as a phrase, probably set back the industry, like the the, the cause, by 20 years. Because when people hear warming, um, they're like, okay, global warming. And really it's more about, like, Extreme weather events are the things that most people feel on a daily basis, and so when they see news about a new cold snap, um, they're like, "Ah, I guess it's not really warming right is it?" Certain
3: people in the news who tweet that. Yes, (laughs) Yes. exactly. We know know what you mean. Exactly.
4: Yep. Um, And so that's what I mean. It's just like thinking ahead, like okay, and and also thinking about how these words can be used uh, by people. So say, for instance, talking with with Jacinda Aldern. Um, You know, downgrading humanity um, or human downgrading wasn't a super helpful term for her. She was like, "Oh yeah, no, that makes sense. We're doing this. I have a specific need of like, how do I solve for the next time that social media is used to amplify an already horrific massacre?" Um, And then for her, then it's actually thinking like, "Oh, I see. So we have algorithmic bias against you know, gender." an algorithmic bias against race. But we also have an algorithmic bias against our values. And so we're getting algorithmic hate and algorithmic polarization um, and algorithmic extremism. And that framing, where you start to see how the effects of the extractive attention economy directly lead to algorithms which promote our most salacious selves, that to her helps because you're like, ah, there's a background radiation, which is tilting us all towards our most extreme selves. Yeah. That's going to have a deep impact on the world.
0: Uh, well, we're we're running uh, pretty close to the end of our time with you. So we want to give you a chance to talk about uh, the new podcast, which you and your team recently launched. Uh, it's called Your Undivided Attention. Mm.
4: Absolutely A-plus podcast name, by the way. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it'd be sort of sad if we were like talking all about language and names, and then we're like, all right, here we go. It's called The Blah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. so uh, we're really excited by your undivided attention Um, (laughs) because all this stuff moves so fast. Um, And podcasts in particular are one of these few mediums that seem to love nuance, uh, so we can really dive in. We get asked all the time, what can I as a ex, a product manager, as a designer, as an engineer, do? And so our hope with the podcast is that we get really into the details of these really thorny problems um, and talk to the experts about uh, about human nature, the people who have been most sophisticated. So that's everything from childhood psychology experts to, you know, con artists and magicians, people who have deep insights into how people actually work um, so that when we design technology, it folds us the way we fold instead of, like, breaking and tearing us. Mm. Yeah.
3: What's next for the Center for Humane Technology? What can we look forward to beyond the podcasts, beyond downgrading humanity? What are you guys working? <laughs> when you know when you look to 3.0, what are you looking at?
4: Yeah, I'm I'm excited. Um, for like, you know, we're, we're in this like interesting phase as an organization, right? Where we're sort of climbed up this, this hill of like, okay, people need to care about these topics and creating a set of terms to talk about them. But you know, it's been largely Tristan and sometimes a little bit me, um, oftentimes people in our constellation like Guillaume and Renee. And what I'm really excited about is this turn that we've made to being a real and full team, um, which just gives us a much bigger capacity to start, say, working on the aspirational pressure, being like, what could the platforms actually look like? Um, I'm really, really excited just about being able to connect all the people in Silicon Valley who have been feeling and thinking these things to see that we all exist and can start working together just that convening part. I know it sounds maybe a little small, but it's not at all. It's, it is the thing that changes our industry. Um, so I'm really excited about that as well.
0: Well, thank you very much for being here today. It was great to have you on the show.
4: Ah, always such a pleasure. Hackers and cyber criminals have always held this kind of special fascination.
1: Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do. It's a game.
0: Who's the best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's
4: play.
3: I'm Dina temple raston and on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the
1: people trying to stop them.
0: We're not afraid of the attack. We're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind it.
1: Click Here, stories about the people making and
4: breaking our digital world. AI machines. Satellite. Engine ignition. Click Here. And lift up. Click Here, every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Thank you for listening to our conversation with Aza Raskin. Uh, we've also covered the Center for Humane Technology quite a bit before on Wired.com. Our editor-in-chief, Nicholas Thompson, wrote a story about their latest launch a couple, I guess that was a couple months ago now. So yeah, be sure yeah. to go to Wired.com and check that out. We'll put it in the show notes as well. And I think it's time for our recommendations. Tis. Ariel, would you like to start?
2: Sure. Um, this week I would like to recommend a very strange book Um, I found this book because Pete Buttigieg, presidential candidate for 2020... Mayor Pete. ...who is also the mayor of (laughs) South Bend um, and also a very trendy person on the internet, uh, he famously learned to speak Norwegian, which is a weird thing to do. And he made this decision after reading this book called Naive Super, which is written by Norwegian author Erland Lowe. Um, And as the legend goes, a young Pete Buttigieg came across his book and was so inspired by it that he wanted to read more works by the author, but none of his other books were translated into English, and so he learned Norwegian just to read this guy. Pretty crazy. So I ordered it on Amazon, and it is real weird, but a really interesting book. It sort of follows the existential crisis of this young Norwegian guy as he contemplates time and meaning and... His existence. Um, It's kind of like a cross between uh, reading The Stranger by Albert Camus and the Karl Ove Nasgaard books.
0: Kind of so it's so like Camus is like 250 pages and Knazgard's like 8,000 pages. That's so right. That's right. <laughs> so
2: you you get you get the brevity and the existential sensibilities of Camus, but the Norwegian bleakness and very short sentences, uh, you know, of of uh uh-huh. yeah. Huh. Sweet. Yeah. Are you finished with it? Uh, I'm very nearly finished with it. It's very short. Huh.
0: So the last book that you recommended on this show and that you recommended to me was, I believe, "Machines Like Me" by Ian McEwan. Oh, great book, which mm-hmm. I read. Absolutely loved it. Thought it was really good. So I'm definitely going to take you up on this one too.
2: Good. I'm going to. Oh, go ahead.
0: I was going to say I'm going to open up my my Libby app and set a hold on it so I nice. get it from the uh, the San Francisco Public Library probably right after you check it in.
2: Oh, I I bought a copy on Amazon.com, so you're welcome to borrow. <laughs> I was going to say I think it's on her desk isn't it on your desk
3: maybe oh no okay well you've got a great stack of books on your desk indeed I do and another one that you recommended was um, I can't think of the name right now the title I should say but it's about a woman who tried to do absolutely nothing for a year
2: My Year of Rest and Relaxation yes. yes one of my favorite books ever that I just read at the beginning of this year yeah I read that one too that one is ugh, just, I, I could read that over and over and over again and never get bored of it. Otessa Mogfesh, the, the author of that, I think is a real rising star.
3: Yeah, for sure. I am going on vacation, or I'm at least taking time off in the next seven days or so. So I would love to borrow it if you have it, because I'm planning on reading that. Absolutely,
2: you should, okay. absolutely. Cool. Yeah,
0: it's very good. Yeah, <laughs> it's weird. I would like to
3: do nothing while reading about doing nothing.
0: Weird as hell. Uh, What's your recommendation? So my recommendation is, um, hey, do you guys like shopping? (laughs) Hey. (laughs) So we have uh, Prime Day, Amazon Prime Day, which is actually like three days coming up in the middle of the month. July 15th, I think, is when it starts. And it actually starts about a week before and lasts until about a week after. And you may not care at all about Prime Day, but... I know from personal experience, like trying really hard to ignore Prime Day and then all of a sudden you see something for sale and you're like, oh snap, I have to get that. Like that's something that I've always wanted and it's like unbelievably cheap right now and I have to buy it. Part of buying something for Prime Day is that it's only, the discounts are only available if you're a member of Amazon Prime. So my recommendation is that you do the 30 day free trial of Amazon Prime. So you go on Amazon or just actually you can't, Okay, you have to do a search for Amazon Prime free trial and then you follow that link and then you sign up for it and then you set a calendar reminder in three weeks or whatever to remind yourself to cancel it before you get charged. And I feel okay saying that because if you, after that time, decide that there's you don't want to shop anything on, for anything on Amazon or nothing that's for sale on Prime Day appeals to you, Uh, then you should cancel your Prime subscription because then you are not drawing any value from it. You're wasting money. So you may also decide that you want to keep it and stay with it. And it's pretty cool. I have Prime. I like it. But also I spend like basically every dime that I earn on Amazon. So I think that it's a good value for me. But if you're looking at Prime Day deals and there are gazillions of them, you're probably going to see something that you want to buy. So sign up for it now and start tracking the stuff that you possibly want to buy and then you'll get alerts and then you'll be able to buy it for cheaper and you'll be able to save money so that's my recommendation whether or not you care whether or not you think you care (laughs) do a 30-day free trial of amazon prime
3: good advice good what do you spend what are you buying when you spend all of your earning wage on amazon
0: um we established this cigarettes twinkies and vodka
3: (laughs) very smart they deliver vodka now
0: To counter, yes.
3: (laughs) Amazing. What's
0: your recommendation, Lauren?
3: My recommendation, this is going to be the second time in recent weeks that I have recommended the Ezra Klein podcast. Um, Which is funny because, like, I don't normally listen to it, but I happen to be listening to it a lot recently. I met Ezra Klein once on the train from D.C. to New York. (laughs) I mean, it's weird because we worked for the same company for a while, but like we never actually really interacted. But we did meet once on a train. Okay, so um, this particular episode is with Dana Young. Uh, She is an associate professor of communications at the University of Delaware, and she's also the author of an upcoming book called Irony and Outrage, which is about the different aesthetics. Aesthetics is the word that she uses between the left and right media universes. So this entire conversation is about the different ways in which left and right media, and who we all sort of traditionally identify as either left-wing or right-wing media, um, since it is like pretty clear to most people, and there have been charts and graphs that show this, how they present information differently, and likewise, how the audiences that consume these different types of media and and the ones they rank as trustworthy, how that um, is sort of an indication of that person's tolerance for new ideas, for risks, for what's perceived as threats. Um, So it's not, so this conversation is not just about media, it actually ends up evolving into a much more interesting and stimulating conversation about uh, our psychology as human beings and human beings who are able to basically ingest different media. Um, And it's really good, Uh, I mean, they talk a lot about things like confirmation bias and sort of the pathology of media basically so what um what you may read or consume because it already is something that confirms what you believe and likewise how we tend to pathologize people who consume a a different a certain type of media without even realizing that we may be doing that
4: Hmm.
3: yeah
2: that sounds fascinating it's
3: a really good conversation and and ezra says a couple of times it's uncomfortable, especially if you work in the media, to mm-hmm. have this kind of conversation, and it's a little bit uncomfortable to listen to as someone who works in the media. But it's really good. Yeah, and I recommend it whether you just you make media or you consume it or both.
0: Yeah, whenever I'm listening to a podcast that has an interview with somebody who works in news or like um, uh, on the media or something like that, it's just like I. I I, I sit up and I pay attention because it's like all very interesting to me, but also it is kind of cringy because they're talking about problems and they're talking about, you know, the bias is like the number one topic on all of these shows. And it's like, I don't want, I don't want to, it's like sitting in front of the mirror right, and just staring at yourself. Which is
3: good, (laughs) which by the way, we should all be doing from time to time and figuring out, like there's this really interesting part of the podcast where Ezra says like, He identifies Vox.com as largely leftist Mm -hmm. and says, you know, he believes a large portion of the audience who goes to Vox.com and watches their videos, listen to their podcasts, um, skew left. But then, you know, shortly afterwards, Dana is talking about how um, the left's approach to to disseminating information is often very didactic and they tend to use like lots of charts and graphs and it's wordy. And, and the difference is like, we're just going to present a whole different bunch of ideas to you and you have to figure out what you think about this. Whereas the rights approach is more, let me tell you how to think. Mm-hmm. And she's saying this, like basically saying like you're wonky to Ezra as he's trying to like parse through Vox's approach to the media. Um, so it's really good. So I, yeah, I just recommend listening to it. It is wonky. Awesome. Yeah.
0: Mm. And it's just called the Ezra Klein podcast. Oh, this
3: is uh, this is the, Ez- the Ezra Klein show. And this Ezra episode, um, this episode is why liberals and conservatives create such different media. Huh.
0: That sounds fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, tell people how they can find you on the Twitter, Lauren.
3: I am at Lauren Good with an E. Send me all your memes.
0: <laughs> and Arielle?
3: I am
2: at Pardesoteric.
0: And I am at SnackFight. And you can
2: bling us all at Gadget Lab.
0: Yes, you can. And thank you all for listening. Uh, next week is a holiday here in the United States of America, so we'll probably have a special show for you. Uh, and until then, if you enjoy the show and you enjoy listening to what we do, please uh, rate us with stars and give us a rate and give us a review with words. We would greatly appreciate it, and we love your feedback, and we love to hear from you, and we love to know that you're listening. So thank you.